Welcome to the City Hill podcast. We really hope you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about City Hill, please visit our website, cityhill.london. Today, we're wrapping up our series, Psalm 23. We're looking at the last and final verse. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the passage. Because it's six verses long, I'm not going to lie, it is really not difficult. Hey, you right? Um, it's, it's not, um, it's not, not hard to, to read the whole chapter. So don't worry, not every week at City Hill will we read an entire chapter of the Bible because that would be insane. Um, but because it's Psalm 23 and it's six verses, I mean, geez, it's so short. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So a quick recap. The first week, we looked at the first three verses. And one of the things that we kind of honed in on, I'm not going to hone in on the whole thing because those talks were pretty long. But... He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me sprawl out. The idea from the sheep's, it's a sheep's eye view that God is like a shepherd and it's from the eyes of a sheep because David wrote this and David was a shepherd. And it's the idea that God takes us to a place, not just where we lie down and makes us lie down in green pastures. He's not like kicking the legs from under them. It's this beautiful green meadow and he's just chilling in it and these beautiful um, still waters. And he restores my soul and leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. It's like God's reputation as a shepherd like you can't have a good reputation if your sheep are getting mauled and eaten up and screwed and not well looked after. So David's painting this picture of God being a shepherd and that God's reputation is on the line in how he cares for his sheep. So God risks his very name in looking after us. And we talked about even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, like it's, it's like this valley where the darkness looms and I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The thing about God is being our shepherd is if we're close to God, then his rod and his staff, they, they bring a comfort to us. It's, it's not a, a fear factor. We're not afraid. We're, we're close to him. And so staying close to God is like such a key, key thing because the staff is there to pull the sheep around by its neck and bring it back in line and guide it in the way that it's going to go. And the rod is there to beat the um, wolves and the lions and the bears that come to eat them. And then the last week we looked at verse 5, which was, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So I would say you have to listen to that one online because we took that one verse and we treated it like a diamond. One of the key things with the Bible is so often people look at one verse and they go, this is what that means and that is it. Whereas what we did last week was we took this one verse and like a diamond, we held it up to the light. And as we turned the diamond, the way the light reflected through it, we saw different key and beautiful things. And so I can't recap that one because there were three different angles we looked at. So I really want to encourage you to maybe go on the City Hill app to listen to the talk or to hit up iTunes on the podcast or SoundCloud. Um, But this week, we're honing straight in on the last verse. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So last week, like I said, we turned that verse like a diamond in the light. Today, we're taking the whole chapter and we're turning the whole chapter to look at it in a different way. This is kind of like the grand reveal at the end of the series. So... We're going to read it in a different light, allowing a constant theme to tie it all together and to talk about something more beautiful than we may have imagined going on in this particular 
psalm. It's a song written from a perspective of a sheep. So one of the key things when we look at it is the way that theologians and people who, who commentate on the Bible tend to talk about, they tend to talk about the first four verses being from a sheep's perspective and then it shifts, shifts to a host. So God is now host. You prepare a table for me in the midst of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But actually, we're going to look at this particular chapter and we're going to look at it completely from a sheep's perspective. So the whole thing is through the eyes of a sheep and we're going to look at something that's a little bit different and a little bit out there. Beholding the awe and the wonder in an animal so meek but holds such power and virtue in Jewish and Hebrew tradition. So for us to do that though, we're going to have to look at a few places in the Bible in the New Testament which you may not have thought are too connected to this kind of psalm. So first off, we're going to be looking in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, was. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining at him with the table. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And so the next thing, we're going to flip ahead to one other passage. We're going to look at Matthew 26, verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head and as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to whoever the gospel is preached, is proclaimed to the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So when we look at that and we look at this passage, we always talk about that one bit because I guess as a society in the West, we're so narcissistic and fame-hungry that it's always about the woman and this story being told everywhere around the world. That's what everyone always talks about. But actually, there's two things here. So people look at these two stories and they go, are they the same story? Um, There's differences in the stories. In the one instance, the feet are being anointed of Jesus and, and with pure nard and expensive perfume in both cases, nard in both cases. And then in the second story, it's on the head. Were the disciples tripping? Could they not like remember the story correctly? Did the two stories disagree with one another? In the first chapter, what we have is we have it happening six days before Passover. This story, when you look at which the first one was in John's Gospel, this one is in Matthew's, Mark, and Luke's, and all of these happen two days before Jesus, before Passover, and before Jesus is crucified on the cross. And so when we look at these two, people will try and level it out. Some people say it's the same account. Some people say it's two accounts. Some people say it's the same woman doing it in both instances. Other people say, well, Mary was a really popular name. Looking by the documents historically we look at, one in five women in the time were called Mary. So it could have been any number of kind of like different Marys when they look over the two different ones. There's all these discussions that people have about this passage. But for me, the most important thing is actually why in one instance... Is it the feet? And why in the next instance is it the head? Because 
for you and I, we're so far removed, we end up talking about these trivial things, which for us look as though they're conflicting accounts, because so often when you and I read the, the narrative, we're so far removed, being thousands of years later, that it's no longer a part of our culture and no longer matters to us. But for the readers of the time and the listeners who would have heard these gospel accounts shared with them, for the Jewish people, they would have heard it and they'd have been like, oh, snap, no friggin' way. Six days before his feet's anointed, two days before his head's anointed, they'd have been like, oh, I see what the writer's saying. I see what they're saying, who he is. I see what they're pointing to. And so we're going to look at that. And the reason we're looking at that is because we're looking at Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So when we read the word forever, it means till the end of days. Um, so we look at this and it's written in the English language and the Bible with an eternal perspective. So we always read this talking about forever because we always think of eternity. But actually the way the Psalms written, what I love about this is David isn't just talking about a sheep. He's talking about a sheep for a purpose. <coughs> the whole Psalm is following the sheep's journey towards the greatest event, which may show you why David is the greatest king in Israel's history and the greatest leader they've ever known and why he took such pride in being a peasant shepherd. While Samuel came to David's father's house, Jesse, to say, I'm going to anoint one of your boys as king, um, his father, Jesse, forgot that David existed. He brought all the other boys out. These are the boys. Pick the king. And then when he said, are there any more? He's like, uh, no, no, no. Oh, wait, yeah. But the shepherd in the field? Are you for real? Yeah, okay, we can bring him out. And then as he gets brought out, God is like saying to Samuel, this is the guy, this is the one. And when we read this psalm, we get a picture of who David is. When we look at who he is um, before he becomes king, we get a picture of who he is. He says, when looking at a giant Goliath, and not just a giant, but there's been an arms race, and the opposition have a new time of metal that they don't have, and so they're severely disadvantaged. In today's world, we'd be looking at the technology that American army has compared to others. An arms race is taking place, and the Philistines not only have the biggest guy in the room, they have the best weapons in the room and a new technology, and the army is afraid, not just of the giant, but of the new technology that they have. And so David looks at it, and he sees it totally different to everyone else. He doesn't see a giant. He doesn't see the new weaponry that they have in technology. He sees one thing. He says, we are the army of God. We are Israel. He doesn't have a tribal mentality that says we're unified around our, our genetics. We're unified about how we look or our appearance. We're unified as in we belong to God. And if we belong to God, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that thinks he can come over here and speak this way? And so David is ready, even as this little guy looking after sheep, to fight and do this because he's God-centric. He's not tribal-centric. It's not about his people. It's not about his nation. It's not nationalistic pride. It's about God, and he has God at the center. So for him, he's not afraid to risk everything. But he's been doing this for a long time. You see, David's been looking after sheep, and he's always taken pride in looking after the sheep because David has always had pride in his relationship with God. He's always had pride in who God is. And for him, looking after a sheep and defending it from a lion and a bear and a wolf and risking your life makes sense for him because for him, the sheep he's protecting are the Passover lambs. He doesn't know which one of those sheep is going to make it and be accepted for that once a year when they remember Exodus, when they remember that 
Israel, the whole ethnicity, the whole people group were enslaved in Egypt, entirety. He remembers their freedom. He remembers the lamb that was slain. He remembers the blood on the doorpost. He knows that once a year, these sheep are taken and he follows this journey because at the end when it says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, at the end of days, and it, it, it's suggestive of passing on into eternity. And the lamb itself is joyful about this is because he sees such prize, such honor in this sheep. He doesn't see it as a little thing. He sees it as something he would risk his life for. He would go fight a lion and tear the sheep out of its mouth and kill the thing rather than go, that's just one gone. Because for him, they had such value. And that was how David saw it. When we look at this passage, there's a few things that I learned this week which I didn't know before. I'd always been told and taught that three days before Passover, you would have this one-year-old male Middle Eastern um, sheep, which is more like a ram, huge horns, really strong. You'd keep it in your house for three days, and after three days, you'd check it over to be the Passover lamb. But actually, I was reading a few accounts, reading a few different rabbis, a few different people about this, and where I'd always been taught at Bible college it was three days, I actually found out something completely different, that it's actually six days. And the first thing that happens is, on the sixth day, is they take this one-year-old, this one-year-old sheep, this one-year-old ram, and they look at it to make sure it's without blemish. And the first thing they do is they get oil and they anoint its feet and its ankles. And the reason they anoint the feet and the ankles is because it has to be without blemish, nothing wrong with it. But this is an animal that lives on mountains and is always scuffing and scratching and damaging its feet. But because it's got to be without blemish, they spend all this time and energy at the beginning when they first have this animal, putting this oil in there, nourishing, getting its feet, restoring it back to health, that when they examine it, it's all okay. And so this woman, while Jesus is there at the table, and she runs in and she's anointing his feet, when the gospel writers want you to read that on the sixth day before Passover, this woman is pouring this expensive perfume on his feet, and people are freaking out. The reason they're freaking out is because there was laws that they had to live by. You couldn't excessively celebrate anything. So if it was someone's birthday and you got out nard and started using it, you'd be in serious trouble. You couldn't celebrate like that. So when the accusations start flying, Jesus says, it's for my burial. Because for your burial, that was acceptable. You could respond in that way. So he was safeguarding this woman who was doing this act of worship that was so, so key for him being who he truly is, that he safeguards her with this statement. He goes, it's not about the celebration of me being in the room. This is anointing me for my burial. This is my path, this is my cup. And so what happens is the days go by and then he's in the temple. And if you had a one-year-old ram in your house, I think you can imagine how it would go down. The place gets trashed. Jesus goes to his father's house, he trashes the place, flipping over the tables. My father's house is a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. He's getting the place right. He's smashing it up. And then what happens two days before, just before he's about to be arrested, before he has the meal, he's in a Pharisee's house. And this woman just comes up and she just, she just can't help it. She just comes with the nard, she comes with the ointment and she starts pouring it all over his head. And what would happen is when they find something about blemish and completely okay, and they had to prove it to be the Passover lamb, they would put oil on its head. You prepare a table for me in the midst and presence of my enemies. You see, when I see David saying this, I see this picture. I see this picture that doesn't just throw back to any Passover lamb, but throws back to the original. In the presence of Egypt, in the presence of slavery, you prepare a table for me, you prepare a meal. And you anoint my head with oil. And my cup overflows. 
cup is a word that gets used time and time again throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that is completely focused on your destiny. It's about calling. It's about fate. And this sheep, in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Jesus, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, it's overflowing right now. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And as this woman anoints his head with oil, Jesus leaves, and he comes to a place where him and his followers celebrate Passover for the first ever time together. The last ever time, sorry, not the first, the last ever time together as a rabbi and his disciples. And what he does is he takes bread, which we're going to do today because we're going to have a communion service today. He takes the bread and he breaks it. And as he breaks it, he says, this is my body, broken for you and for many. And the disciples would have sat there going, Jesus, what the heck are you talking about? This is about Egypt. This has nothing to do with you. You and I read it as Christians and just go, that's fine. It's his body broken for us. But they're reading it going, what the heck are you talking about? This isn't Egypt. We're here. Like, what the hell are you on about? And then he goes a step further and he takes the wine, the symbol of the blood of the, the lambs that was put on the doorpost and the lintel. And he says, this is my blood poured out for you and for many. This is the blood of the new covenant, the promise that I've made for you. Do this in remembrance of me. They're like, are you crazy? We do this once a year in remembrance of Egypt and remembrance of Passover. This has nothing to do with you. It has sounded like heresy for them. So they took these emblems and then Jesus leaves and he's betrayed by Judas. He's arrested, he's taken. He's brought before Pilate and Pilate looks at Jesus, examines him, questions him and says, I find no fault with this man, but I'll punish him anyway. And at that moment, Jesus is officially the Passover lamb who John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. At that moment, Pilate says, I find no fault with this man, but I will, whip, I will punish him anyway, which means the whip. Jesus was taken, he was whipped, and the blood flowed from his back. One of the last things they'd do with a Passover lamb is they would cut the back of the lamb and they would say, this is sacrificially fit to be the Passover lamb. At that moment, Jesus then was taken and he was crucified. And it says that he was crucified at Nissan at the, at the, the ninth hour, which is around 3 p.m. on their clock and calendar. Jesus was crucified and died on the cross at the same time that Passover lambs were being slain all over Jerusalem and all over the city. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so when I look at this psalm, actually, the Lord is my shepherd, but actually it's, it's a bit high school musical here, which is not the greatest illustrative word to use in a moment like this. Can't we be both? God's kind of the shepherd and he's kind of the sheep in the story because he is the one who shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's the one that pays away that you and I can come to God. Last week or the week before, I was at Lambeth Palace, which is like a, where the Archbishop of Canterbury is. We're not Church of England. I'm not Church of England. I was there for a book launch. But they were talking about the welfare state and the church and how the church used to do the jobs of the welfare state. Then the government decided they want to be the church and they created the welfare state 70 years ago. Now the government's like, this costs a lot of money. I'm not sure we want to be the church anymore. The church isn't in a position to take that over anymore because of things haven't gone well for the church since it vacated that position. And so it was all a mess and there were discussion moving forward, how things can go and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that a few people said and everyone on the platform seemed to agree on was they seemed to have this strange view that when the church gave up all these good things they did in the community, there was nothing left for the church to do. And I was sitting there and I think I was the only person in the room that maybe felt that actually everything they were talking about is the secondary role of the church. And a lot of people I've seen on Facebook, some quite influential Christians and stuff that I'm friends with and stuff, they're having discussions about the church and about gangs, about young people. 
the church do more, this, that, and the other. And they're talking about all these urgent kind of social responsibilities. And they're talking about all these things, but actually they miss the whole point. They're like, these are the things that the church should be doing. This is what church should be about. And I'm like, that's secondary. You see, what Jesus was about is he didn't come back and start setting up a youth group in Jerusalem going like, there's so much poverty and stuff going on because of the Romans, we've got to worry about this stuff. He came to set up an eternal perspective. He had an eternal perspective. You see, even if we create the greatest youth organizations on the planet to deal with knife crime, somewhat young person is still going to kill another young person. Even if we do the greatest anti-gun crime stuff, someone is still going to get a gun and shoot someone. The greatest thing about the church and the unique thing about the church above all else is that the church has an eternal perspective of an eternal gift that it gives that transcends anything here and now. That doesn't mean we don't care about that stuff, doesn't mean we don't do that stuff, but it always has to take second place because the Passover lamb wasn't a political thing, it was an eternal thing. It was an eternal thing that has the consequence to change the political thing. If I think back to when I was a teenager and some of the things that I did, I did so much dumb stuff. I got involved in so much trouble, like so many things. Like one of my uh, girl I was seeing, she was sexually assaulted by a gang because they wanted to get to me and my friends because of stuff that we'd done to them. I look at all the madness that happened there. The only thing that changed my life was Jesus. I would never have stopped doing any of the stuff I was doing. I wouldn't have stopped doing any of it if it hadn't been for God coming and changing my heart. And so when we look at this passage today, today what we're doing is we're going to break bread and we're going to take the wine. And for some of us, there's going to be two things that take place. For some of us, we're going to take it and what's going to happen is we're going to remember our Passover. We're going to remember when Jesus came and he delivered us from our situation. For others of us, we may be in a situation right here, right now, where like the children of Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt. They took this meal, trusting in God, and the next day they stepped out into freedom, into new life. So today I want to remind us of those two things. And as we wrap up this series on Psalm 23, I want to let us all be sure that he is the good shepherd. But he's not just a shepherd, he's also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And for many of us, we may need guidance today. For some of us from the Lord, not me. <laughs> let me take that pressure off. Oh, some of us might need guidance today from God. Some of us might need restoration. Some of us might need healing today. Some of us might have deep, deep wounds and scars and hurts. And I don't have any of the answers. I, 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 I'm, I'm like sway. I don't have all the answers. But I know the one who does. And today as we take these emblems, we can connect with what he does. We do this remembrance of Jesus and we look to him. And he restores and he is faithful to heal. Um, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to have communion. Father, I thank you for the beautiful layers to the writing of David in, in Psalm 23. I thank you that he was a shepherd who risked everything because he saw a value in those sheep that's transcended far beyond any monetary wealth or means or gains. I thank you, Father, that when you look at us, you see that same unbelievable value because you came and shed your blood for us. You came and you died on a cross for us that we might be sons, that we might be daughters, we might receive the inheritance you have for us. That you didn't see a value on us or a cost that was too high. You gave your only begotten son. You didn't withhold your son from us, but you gave him freely and he gave himself freely that we might find restoration, we might find healing, we might find peace, we might find love. But not only that, but that in finding something of eternal worth, it would transform us, that we would be agents of change in our communities here and now on this earth. Father, I pray that you would empower us as a collective and as individuals to shine the light that you've given us in our spheres of influence, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that as we take these emblems today, the bread and the wine, I pray 
that for those of us who need to be set free today, just like they were in Egypt, I pray we will be free as we look and trust to you, Jesus. For others of us that want to celebrate and remember, oh, thank God that you've brought me through that. Thank you so much. I pray that we would meet with you and rediscover you in a new and beautiful way, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. hope you enjoyed today's message and if you'd like to find out more about City Hill please visit our website cityhill.london London.